Hey, Shannon, how are you? I can't move. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little rough today after a huge Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> um, yeah, we're trying to get um, get enough energy up to opt outside and uh, go outside down to the farm and play around instead of going shopping. Spend it, you know out with the rocks and everything, but it's pretty cold up here in Iowa, so I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I saw a few states were giving free admission to state parks on, uh, well, today. Uh, yes, exactly. I encourage anyone to go do that instead of, you know, going off and consuming because it's really cool to look around your place or whatever place you're visiting in a season when you're not typically outside. You really notice a lot of cool different and new things when you go out, especially when it's cold outside. I just, I really like it. It seems pretty cool. If I can get my butt out the door, we'll see. <laughs> well, and there's not as many people when it's cold outside. You generally have the trails a little bit more to yourself. Uh, exactly. And you have a lot of chance of seeing a lot more wildlife too, just because there aren't that many people out. So um, I encourage everyone to opt outside right now. Yeah. After they listen but, to well, our show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. And we have an exciting uh, bit of news. We actually have feedback. Yay, again, from someone else. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yes. So we're now up to at least six or seven of you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, people. No, so this was uh, an interesting email that we got from Bart after last week's show on earthquake magnitudes. And... He said that, well, you know, he thinks that people still have a problem understanding logarithmic scales. And he said, well, from, uh, from my standpoint, it would be interesting if we used something like SI prefixes that imply large differences. So like a milliquake or a kiloquake or a gigaquake. Uh, that's a really interesting idea. Um, I would definitely agree that people do not understand those logarithmic differences, which is, you know, why we did the show. Um, that would be an interesting idea to start naming them that way. And then you get rid of that whole number convention and confusing those sequential numbers with logarithmic numbers. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the the one issue I can see, especially in the U.S., is nobody knows the SI pre prefixes either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, giga seems really big. And I think that's about where it ends for most people, probably. <laughs> but... That's that's a whole nother issue and a whole nother show. Well, at least three or four, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But no, I thought it was an interesting idea. And so thanks, Bart, for your feedback. That was a really interesting email. If you have any feedback, no, you should definitely send it to us. It helps us improve the show, and we really enjoy sharing it. Right. And we always love to hear ideas for future shows um, from you because we want to know what you're interested in and I'm sure we're interested in it too so let us know what you want to hear in the future for Don't Panic yeah well and Shannon's about to head out the door to go outside and I'm absolutely stuffed and don't know <laughs> if I will be able to get out the door so we thought that we would share with you something from almost 40 episodes ago <laughs> if you can believe it I can't believe it at all <laughs> but I yeah. know this was uh, this was an episode very near and dear to your heart, John, and I think it is worth revisiting um, for people who haven't heard it before, or even if you did hear it. I know when I listened to it again, I even though I was discussing it, I learned a lot more the second time around. Yeah, it was also interesting to hear what we sounded like, only having done seven shows together. Yes, hopefully we've gotten a little bit better, but you know. Everything improves with Hopefully. <laughs> so this is episode six. What if you calibrated your candles differently? And, Which... and it's all about time. And like you said, it's one of my favorites. And it's also one of the favorites of our early listeners as well. Uh, right, exactly. So our parents really like this episode. And we thought you guys should hear it too. <laughs> um, it, it's really cool because we talk all about the history of timekeeping in general, hence the candle remark. Um, and then we move all the way up through, you know, why we do these ridiculous leap years in the first place, right? Yeah, and there's a lot of confusing things in there. Uh, <laughs> leap seconds, all kinds of different time scales. It can really be a headache. <laughs> and 
I it's a headache that we took about an hour to discuss, and I think it's a really interesting episode. So we hope you'll enjoy it as we do our first ever revisit of episode six. U.S. Naval Observatory Master Clock at the tone Eastern Standard Time, 18 hours, 22 minutes, exactly. of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how you doing? Great, John. How's your week been? Cold. I I think (laughs) I have moved to Siberia. (laughs) Yeah, um, it's been cold here too, but I think that's a little different than your kind of cold. (laughs) Yeah, on the climate reanalysis page this week, uh, we were much colder than the North Pole, and uh, we were pretty comparable to parts of Greenland, actually. It was it was kind of miserable. Hey, well, Greenland's melting, so that's a good sign. Um, <laughs> yeah, here in Oklahoma, we had a couple of snow days, because, you know, it snowed a quarter of an inch. Um, <laughs> school was out for two days, cars all over the road, in the ditches. Oh, my gosh. We are a mess down here when snow starts to fall. <laughs> yeah, a quarter of an inch wouldn't wouldn't do much here, I'm afraid. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Everyone from up north laughs at us, but it's deserved, I will say. It's so deserved because we are so idiotic when it comes to driving (laughs) and we're just about to get more so uh this weekend's looking like it's going to shape up to be a really great field day for my students um 70 chance of three inches of snow so they're going to like that a lot (laughs) so fire rain snow you've you've had it all in just an early part of the semester exactly you know college is the time where you experience the elements right (laughs) (laughs) so earth wind fire water mm-hmm we're taking care of all of them. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. So uh, before we get started, do you have your coffee cup in front of you? Uh, well, yes. I No, I don't. I <laughs> gave up coffee for Lent. I tried to fake it right then, but nope. <laughs> okay. But I bet you do. <laughs> I do have a coffee cup in front of me. And I, so I if you it. do have one in front of you, I encourage you to take a drop out of it and put it on your desk. And we will come back to it at the end of the show and look at the dried coffee as part of Fun Paper Friday. (laughs) We're serious. It'll really be cool. You should do it. (laughs) (laughs) So what are we going to talk about this week? Well, in the meantime, (laughs) that's what we're going to talk about, right? Last week, we talked a lot about geologic time and what we call deep time in the geosciences, but I think it got both of us thinking a lot more about what does time mean in general absolutely and geologic time was a subject that maybe i was a little bit less comfortable with so i decided it was only fair to turn the tables around this week (laughs) (laughs) so you didn't get to talk much so now you have to nerd out on the physics of actual time right (laughs) right so we're going to talk about time and does anybody really know what time it is so and the answer is, is no, I think, after reading what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it's actually really complicated. And I did a lot of reading and a lot of research on these show notes. And before we get too far, I want to recommend a book that I have here on my desk. It was not the direct inspiration for this show, but I read it about a year ago, and it's called Splitting the Second, The Story of Atomic Time by Tony Jones. And it originally introduced a lot of these ideas that we'll talk about to me. And then I had to kind of dive in and go down lots of wiki holes this past week to (laughs) fully understand them. All in the sake of uh, the podcast, right? (laughs) All in the sake of the podcast. And it turns out it's actually really easy for us to measure kind of how long a second is and what relative time is. But absolute time is pretty tricky and pretty vague as it turns out uh much like geologic time as we learned last week right Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i'm sure that you and half of our listeners maybe okay definitely more than half of our listeners are going to be wondering (laughs) why do we care about time so much and getting it precise you know isn't a second good enough and it turns out the answer is 
no for almost everything in the world of geophysics. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, for geology, probably, um, you know, long timescales are much more important. But with our increasing use of technology, right, that's where this kind of thing becomes supremely important about we're all on the same page, we're all measuring it, and we're measuring it in exact time, right? Right. So for you and I, you know, meeting up to record the podcast, we really only need minutes accuracy. <laughs> and Seconds usually that's even not even accurate, but... <laughs> Right. If we're in the ballpark, it's good. Right. But we need some kind of common coordinate system, and that's what time provides. I think last week we even mentioned that time really is just another coordinate in terms of X, Y, Z, and T. Right. Exactly. Yeah, which I think we often forget. And so this is just another reminder of how important it is to think about this coordinate in the scale of any of your research you're doing at all. I mean, it's not just geology or geophysics, but particularly in those things. Right. And it's going to come as no surprise probably that a lot of the things we're going to talk about were pushed forward by astronomers. Uh, right, exactly. they need to know the time very precisely. Um, but really, in geophysics, we need time to synchronize our measurements because if we're trying to locate an earthquake, being accurate to a minute between a bunch of seismometers really isn't going to cut it. We're not going to have a very good constraint on where that earthquake occurred. So we try to use GPS time and synchronize down to the sub-millisecond level now. Right, because if you're wrong by a couple of minutes and, you know, we use these seismometers to triangulate where an earthquake occurred, I mean, a couple of minutes could be, could translate into several thousand kilometers off of where the actual focus of the earthquake is, right? Right. And these are all seismometers that are around the world, so they can't be tied to the same physical recording system. So we have to have some common coordinate. Whereas if you're shooting, say, an active seismic reflection line, you don't really care about absolute time that much. You care about relative time, and you have all of your sensors tied into the same recording computer, probably. Or you could, unless it's a massive survey. <laughs> and yeah. you don't really care exactly that you know it was 4.08 p.m. when you That's did a this shot. That's a good point. I didn't think about the differences in like what you're actually trying to achieve since, yeah, these things are, if you're using any kind of global data at all, you all need to be on the same page. Right. And now, luckily, atomic clocks have become cheap enough that they can be integrated into just about everything, including seismometers, or you can just pull time from GPS. But I feel like that's putting the cart a little ahead of the horse. Right, right. So at... Let's talk about GPS then, because that's how we do this, right? Okay, yeah, let's talk about GPS. <laughs> I know I love my GPS, but GPS comes from satellite, right? Mm -hmm. So one billionth of a second, or a nanosecond, as we would say, error in just one GPS satellite. That means what for a satellite? Okay, so that's going to mean that the GPS receiver thinks that it's about one foot closer to or further away from the satellite, actually. Okay, and that's going to be a bigger error once you translate that back to Earth, right? Right, because you have to do some coordinate transformations, and you have to actually have at least three satellites to get a lock on your position. Uh, so that's going to be two or three feet positioning error on Earth that's just from one nanosecond. Just from one nanosecond. That's unbelievable. I mean, before we had all this GPS technology unlocked, you know, we'd have 10 to 20 feet error, but now I think we're really used to model you know all the models that we make from geophysical data and then just the data we take in general we're used to having this super precision so like one nanosecond off and we lost huge. three feet yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> that's so, unbelievable and the most complicated thing about it is there's an entire network of these gps satellites and they all have to be synchronized and they all have to be corrected for relativistic effects which is all because they're out in space you know thousands of kilometers away from us, right? That's Right, they're traveling fast, so there's uh, some effects from moving at high rates of speed, and they're also further away from Earth, so they have a different gravitational acceleration. And right, gravity and all those are going to... radius. Right, and all that's going to translate into having to adjust for their relative to each other positions. Right. So it's a really complicated system. Yeah. But... <laughs> Maybe once again, we can go back and talk about some of the really 
early timekeeping devices, long before GPS and atomic clocks. <laughs> and, and long uh, before anyone was worried about <laughs> nanosecond errors in there. We'll, we'll start with something that we have a chance of understanding. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, what were the earliest things that we as humans used to mark time? Well, so one of the ones that I thought was actually pretty cool, and I was going to try to do it this week, uh, was to burn a candle. And since a candle is going to burn at approximately a constant rate, they would actually manufacture these nice glass cases that had graduations marked on them that would be relative time. So at a <laughs> fixed time, when say when the sun set, you could light the candle and then you could tick away in 20-minute marks what time it was. Wow. Okay. That's really cool. But then you have to assume that everyone's buying from the same place and that the candles are all made of exactly the same stuff. And I imagine there's quite a bit of error in that as well. Well, and also that everybody had the same definition of a minute. If right. you calibrated your candles differently... Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Candle calibration. Not something I've worried about in my scientific undertaking. But, I mean, I guess that, that would make a difference. I mean, but so when I think about early timekeeping, I also think a lot about hourglasses, right? So it's the same sort of problems, though. Right. And hourglasses were actually a pretty big way to keep time and ships that were using them for navigation would actually have a suite and this is kind of one of the earliest examples that i found of what you would say is an ensemble or mean average forecasting is they would have many hourglasses and try to average out the air oh no kidding yes oh i didn't know that that's <laughs> that's kind of awesome <laughs> okay so ensemble forecasting based on these huge massive <laughs> hourglasses all mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. wow. But then, of course, we eventually get to clocks, and they're water-powered clocks. I found some references to mercury-powered clocks, uh, all kinds of things that were probably really not that great for your health. Uh, yeah. And they also turned out not to be that accurate. <laughs> um, so, how? I mean, is this sort of the same? How exactly are these working? So they're powered by mercury or water, and I'm assuming they're going to be turning something of a set size right right it's basically a drip rate on a water wheel okay so yep. again you have calibration issues just like with candles or hourglasses or anything like that right exactly but when finally <laughs> there was galileo and eventually huygens that came up with kind of the way that we kept time for many many years and do you have an idea what that might be <laughs> Oh, man. Um, it's got to do something with the sun, right? No. Oh, <laughs> I'm a bad scientist. <laughs> so actually, this comes from watching a chandelier swing in a church. Oh, pendulums, of course. Of course. Yes, pendulums. <laughs> <laughs> and these were the bane of everybody that took physics one and enjoy <laughs> physics. But they're the really cool science experiments at the science museums always have to do with pendulums. They do. And that's because pendulums have all these really interesting properties. Like their period does not depend on the mass that's at the end of the string or the rod or whatever. Which is really, which is really weird. <laughs> right. It, it, it seems very non-intuitive. Yes. But it actually just depends on the gravitational acceleration that the pendulum is in and the length of the string of or the rod string. or wire. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, I actually found, so I kind of lied just then, because I actually have a really cool clip that I found online talking about <laughs> how Galileo first started to use pendulums to do this. Um, and so we'll put that in the show notes, but it's from a really cool uh, public television show called How We Got to Now, and there's one all about time. And so it's just a little sketch and a video about how Galileo used these pendulums um, to what we start calling the modern clock, right? Right. So I guess pendulums, pendula, I'm not actually sure what the correct form is here, <laughs> but Pendula. eventually we decided that there were errors in those due to things like expansion and contraction of the metal rod that the bob was on because of changes in temperature. Right, right. I can see that. Right. And so there were all kinds of ridiculously clever designs using thermal expansion of different fluids to shift mass and try to make temperature corrected pendula and some really creative engineering solutions. 
I love it when science was just done by old rich people who had the time to come up with these <laughs> <laughs> weird answers to the questions. Like, <laughs> you could do that, or you could just find a temperature-controlled environment, but I'm sure it's much more fun to determine hydraulic constants and all those sort of things. Well, and these provide me with, you know, we talked about these being a, a nightmare in classes. Uh, <laughs> we said that the period of the pendulum de- depends on G as well as the length of the string. And so this is one of my favorite test questions to put on tests for students. Of You have a pendulum clock that loses X minutes per week when it's at location B compared to location A. Calculate the height of location B relative to that of location A. Based on the change in gravity. That's nice. I like it. It brings in lots of physical concepts together. Bougay gravity uh, anomalies, all that jazz, right? (laughs) Free air corrections. You have to know how to do it all. That's nice. That's good. I like it. (laughs) Because I'm not taking your class. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Any students listening know that that's coming. Hey, they don't know all the answers. There's still some more things they need to correct for in there. Um, so we've used pendulums forever, right? I mean, I remember growing up and my parents' grandfather clock had a pendulum, you know, we still Mm -hmm. do that, but, um, we moved on in the atomic age and started using, you know, physics and chemistry of atoms to start keeping time, right? (laughs) Well, that's a lot of what the book Splitting the Second is about. It does cover some early timekeeping, but then it goes into atomic clocks and the development of atomic clocks. And so the first one, actually, do you have any guess as to what decade this would have been in? Oh, I mean, obviously, I want to say, like, the 50s, but I bet it was earlier than that. Well, we can probably give it to you. It was 1949. Oh, close enough. Right. And it was actually ding, by ding, the... Ding. <laughs> that was a win, yes. Uh, it was actually by the National Bureau of Standards, which okay. doesn't sense. exist anymore. But I know that name from the work that they've done. To make standards, right? Right. It's kind so of now, an important Now we <laughs> would call it drop. NIST. Right, right. But it was actually based on ammonia. It was an ammonia maser. Oh. And it really turned out to not be very accurate. In fact, <laughs> uh, it didn't work that well at all. But it was a proof of concept that you can um, use atoms to keep time. In this case, it just didn't look very promising. Hey, most of the first stuff we do doesn't ever work anyway. So then we moved on to cesium, right? It gave us a more accurate clock right and cesium has been kind of the standard for a long time and they used to be huge and then you could get them as 19 inch rack mount units and they would go 19 inches that's it yeah and uh they still make those actually hp agile oh, yeah. keysight yeah and now they're actually shrinking down more towards chip scale so they can be of integrated course. into <laughs> to lots of things of course uh, <laughs> but the first the first cesium clock turned out to be in 1955 at the National Physical Laboratory. In the UK, right? In the UK. Mm-hmm. And it started showing some promise for accuracy of atomic timekeeping. So, atomic timekeeping. We've said this a couple times. I think most people probably sort of know about it. But what exactly are we measuring when we're using an atom of an element to define something? Well, so it turns out with the cesium atom, we are measuring the frequency of radiation that will correspond to the transition between two different energy levels of okay. the cesium-133 atom. Okay, so you got these little guys moving around in there, and they change their energy on a very predictable scale. Right, so when you excite them with a very certain frequency, you can get this energy transition, and not another frequency. Right. It has to be right on. So that, uh, that's how we define the second and the SI second is defined as. Are you ready for this? This is a. This is oh, a very... I bet it's really great. Yes, <laughs> hit me. Hit me what the SI second is. Nine billion one hundred ninety-two million six hundred thirty-one thousand seven hundred seventy cycles of radiation that correspond to that energy change. Um, how do we measure that? <laughs> I mean, 9 billion cycles of that energy change? I mean, I guess it has to do with, you know, the frequency that you're exciting the atom at. Right. So it depends on exactly how your clock works. There are different types of cesium clocks and different types of atomic clocks. 
But the idea is that we want to use maybe microwave radiation to try to excite these atoms, and when we hit the exact frequency, that frequency, the atoms will become excited. And we can measure that with different methods. Yay! I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm excited to understand how we have a second. That's... Uh, <laughs> wow. That's incredible. So, um, yeah, really what we do is the electronics sit there and count cycles. And there's this complicated feedback loop. And when that many cycles pass, that is the definition of one second. That's unbelievable. And the newest atomic clocks are called cesium fountains. Okay. They're not quite as reliable yet as standard oh. maser hmm. clocks. Okay. And by quite as reliable, I mean that they break more often. Ah. <laughs> They're still measuring to the same to the same amount of, you know. They're actually more precise. Oh, okay. They're right. more precise. In fact, they are the most precise instrument that has ever been built to measure anything in the history of man. Wow. These cesium atomic fountain clocks. They will not let gain or lose one second in 300 million years. Okay. <laughs> now we're talking about timescales I'm familiar with. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that looks good. So I should just carry one of these around with me. How big are these now? Uh, these are pretty good. You can you can fit about three or four in a moderate-sized room. Uh, so oh. that means about one in a standard university lab. Okay, but not big enough to stick in my field fanny pack. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that means that that frequency that we just mentioned, you know, 9 billion and on and on, we have to have that precisely on to 16 decimal places to get that accuracy. Wow. 16. 16 decimal places. Okay. And they they keep talking about pushing this further because, okay, right now nothing needs the time that precisely. But as soon as something does, they need to have the next best thing, right? You have to have a, you have to have a more precise instrument to calibrate your current instrument. It's <laughs> That's right. Yes, exactly. And so losing one second in 300 million years isn't precise enough. <laughs> well, well, the catch is once you start going uh, somewhere between 10 and 100 times above the precision that they're already measuring the second to, uh, you hit relativity again. Ah. And these clocks, as you mentioned, aren't tiny. And if you have a meter-tall clock, gravity is different between the top and the bottom of the clock, which means time runs a little bit differently at the top of the clock than it does at the bottom of the clock. And you're approaching being able to measure that if you get that accurate. Wow. Wow, that's unbelievable. Right. So, <laughs> hence, hence the need for small size, not just to put in your fanny pack, but to do away with any of these relativistic effects of the atoms at the top and the bottom, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, a meter's not that big. Some of these clocks were initially super large. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Huh, okay. And so, really, what, uh, what happens in the cesium fountain is lasers will cool <laughs> the cesium atoms way down. I mean, we are within tiny fractions of a degree of zero Kelvin. Okay. So these atoms are not moving that much, <laughs> and they get clumped together. And then another laser will loft them up through this tall column in the clock, and they'll pass through microwave radiation, actually once on the way up and once on the way down. And they tune the frequency of that microwave radiation until you get maximum light emission from the atoms when they come back down through the clock, meaning that the electrons are switching energy states and then re-emitting some energy out to the detectors. Right. Okay. And so there's this feedback loop of you tweak it and you see if it gets brighter or less bright, and then you tweak it. And when you find the maximum intensity, the frequency that that microwave oscillator is running at must be, by definition, 9,190,631,770 cycles. Exactly. It is the only frequency we actually know, and everything else is measured relative to that. Wow. That's really cool. I mean, that's, that's really neat. It's cool that the most precise instrument we have is for so fundamental of a measurement. Right. But an atomic clock doesn't say that it's 130 precisely. What do you it mean? tells it tells you what a second is. 
Okay, so now you've got to have some way to gather up all your seconds, right? Right, you have to have somebody gather up all your seconds, and you have to have some reference to go to on. when you start gathering your seconds. Right. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so we've got the seconds down to you know nine billion oscillations of this cesium atom. Right. How do we, how do we get the rest of our time? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are lots of ways. <laughs> And there once are lots again, of problems, I'm guessing, too. <laughs> well, once again, it, it's really complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so there are many time standards. In fact, I would, I would say I probably looked at somewhere between 18 and 20 different time standards when I was compiling the show notes. That are used? Not all commonly, but okay. they are all valid time standards, and most of them are still maintained. Wow. Okay. So we don't use railroads anymore. That's what I remember is, you know, that's what we all get taught. Um, right. As that's how, <laughs> that's how time came to be, right? Is because these railroad guys wanted to get on the same page. Yeah. And getting, you know, their really, uh, their pocket watches that were 16 jewel watches and right. didn't, didn't gain or lose more than, you know, a few seconds a day. That, that was the top of the top that of the was, line then. Exactly. And it's funny because, you know, if you were just traveling in your relative time space, that was good enough, right? It wasn't until we started to connect everybody across the country that this more need of an absolute time became a thing. Right. So kind of the earliest time standard was solar time. Okay. That makes sense because we can all see the sun from everywhere, right? Uh, unless it's in Pennsylvania, then it's cloudy most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, well... <laughs> The tropics, yeah. the tropics have really good time, but it's ironic since no one cares about what time it is if you're on the beach. <laughs> right. <laughs> and even solar time can be uh, a little weird. So when the sun is straight overhead or when you know, it's at uh, its highest point in the sky, so it's casting a shadow that's straight north or south at noon, you can say, well, every 15 degrees that the sun moves through the sky then is an hour. Right. And, okay, that makes sense. Right. You're just dividing the sphere and figuring that out. Right. But sundials give actually apparent solar time. Because it depends on where your dial is? Or what do you mean? Because of the Earth's tilt and orbit. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which isn't constant over geologic time. Uh, No, not at all. (laughs) Even over human time, actually, it's not constant. (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah. I see some... Some putting some columns or some ticks in the uh, air column. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, and actually, we're kind of plus or minus 30 seconds from a mean 24-hour day throughout the year. So that's a pretty significant variation. So there is this construct of mean solar time, which is what a mean sun that doesn't exist would look (laughs) at. (laughs) Right, because, (laughs) not because our sun is nice, um, but since it's going to blow up in four billion years, uh, but because, you know, the sun's at different places in the sky, depending on the tilt of the Earth. Right. And they came up with this thing, and I, I love the name of this equation because it sounds very deep. It is the equation of time. <laughs> Man, that does sound quite epic, doesn't it? <laughs> and all it is is the difference between mean and apparent solar day time. Okay. So, so it's this curve that you can go to, you're here in the air, okay, you are so many seconds ahead of or behind what means solar time. Okay. Because we, we wouldn't need that if we, you know, our rotational axis were straight up and down. Right. Right. But turns out we can use things other than the sun. And anybody the, that has heard about navigation has an idea, probably. The stars. <laughs> right. <laughs> So there's a star clock, right? Like, I'm just looking at this right now. I mean, it seems pretty pretty self-evident that what you're going to use is a constellation, right? And the pole star. Right. So there is a star clock, and this link will be in the show notes. If you learn how to do it, which it's not hard. It's just remembering no. all of the steps. Yes. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot can, of steps. You can tell time to within about 30 minutes by looking at the stars. Which is pretty impressive. If and that's with no instruments. Yeah, just staring at him, right? Just staring at him. But over a time scale of hundreds of years, solar time, star time, all of this can drift a little bit because of some wobbles in our <laughs> axis. Thanks, Earth, for hanging in there and letting us do this. Well, I mean, it's true because the pole star now 
isn't the same as the pole star when the Egyptians were certainly telling time 4,000 years ago. Well, once things went global, (laughs) that didn't work so well. Uh, Yeah, because we need more than 30 minutes accuracy. Right. Even even losing 30 seconds adds up in a year. So there's a scale called International Atomic Time, which is abbreviated TAI. Okay. In some other language, right? In some other language. Actually, it turns out there was a fight over which language the abbreviation should be in, so it is in a combination of languages. Uh, Is it in Esperanto or no? (laughs) No, it is not in Esperanto. (laughs) That makes me sad because I love Esperanto. Um, Wow. So they just abbreviated it based on some random combination. Okay. All right. That that happened with several of these, as we'll see. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what atoms are we using for this international clock? So these were, the time this was based in, it's probably almost all cesium. Uh, But it turns out it's a weighted average of 400 atomic clocks worldwide. Okay, so all over the world. So you're hoping hoping that you're going to average out relativistic error and all other kinds of error by using this, right? Right, so it's a measurement of something that we're going to call proper time, which is a relativity term. There's a link in the show notes if you want to go down the hole of proper time it makes this entire conversation more confusing though <laughs> okay so we'll link that and move on uh, <laughs> right. i don't want to get stuck down any wiki holes uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right so proper time 400 atomic clocks over the world right and what happens is this all this averaging of course makes the error much lower and also all the math happens and the time scale <laughs> is published in a monthly bulletin is it still published in a monthly bulletin? Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> I love that all the math happens and all the errors just go away when we average things. This is an awful thing to say, but it's how we, it's how we do science. So. <laughs> well, and here's the interesting thing. If an error is retroactively found in this time scale, mm-hmm. unless it was a printing error in the bulletin, it is left uncorrected. They don't correct it. They do not correct it. That is the power of averages. Well, I, no, that's... I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, I mean, even if a math error was made, it is not corrected because there are calculations and systems that were based on that bulletin that was put out. Ah, so you can't keep changing whatever yes. you're using. Once it is published, it is gospel. It is not changed retroactively. <laughs> now... It, there is a branch of it. There is a time scale called the terrestrial time standard that is TAI that is corrected if errors are found retroactively. Oh, my gosh. And it's based on this international atomic time. Yes. But just corrected international atomic time. Right. So we call it terrestrial time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is all super... Um, Super depressing, actually. <laughs> it's really depressing. All these things we take for granted. Mm-hmm. Well, then we can go into things that, uh, you know, meteorologists, their favorite time scale. Zulu, Zulu. <laughs> Zulu or <laughs> Greenwich Mean Time, GMT. Right. And just as a note, um, John and I schedule our meetings for taping the podcast in GMT. Right. And... <laughs> We actually shouldn't do that. We should schedule them in UT, as it turns out, because GMT is no longer supported and maintained by the scientific community. I heard that and got very sad about that. (laughs) Yes, UT is what we used to call GMT. Right. Okay, so now we're going back to UT, which is universal time? It is universal time. why did we abandon GMT and now we're back to UT? It's mostly a definition thing. And it turns out, so there's UTC, which is universal or coordinated universal time that we'll talk about in a second. But are you ready for the the splits (laughs) of UT? Okay, hit me. There's UT0, UT1, UT1R, and UT2 timescales. I don't have this many functions on my uh, (laughs) clocks. So so which one am I going to use? What on earth is the difference at all? So... They're all based on the Earth's rotation, but with respect to different bodies. So to different distant stars, to our star. So what's the purpose of doing that? Like, <laughs> if you average them, you get an even better... <laughs> I mean, wow. 
yeah, so this is where we need an astronomer uh, uh, <laughs> to yeah. be on the show. Oh, my goodness. Okay. But it turns out UT1 is what people mean when they say UT generally. Oh, really? Okay. And it is the mean solar time at the equator. Okay, great. But solar observations are hard, even now. And, and even in the tropics. <laughs> and even in the tropics. <laughs> so we can use things like very long baseline interferometry. Okay, so now you're using a laser. No, now we are using quasars. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, uh, so space lasers. <laughs> uh, so quasars that are really far away from us, we can use radio telescopes at different places on the Earth's surface. And as long as they are synchronized in relative and absolute time very well, we can do interferometry. We can also, we can use lasers, actually, so uh, maybe I shouldn't have said any eh, wrong yeah data. that's right <laughs> well we can do laser ranging of things but pretty much just the moon because we left reflectors there <laughs> so much like on the golf course you have to have something to ping it off of to be able to understand how far away you know your laser is moving right right and so we left retro reflectors on the moon with the apollo missions and we can shoot them with mm -hmm. lasers and get some that, return back that was a lot of foresight on our part excellent great <laughs> all okay. right UTC, Coordinated Universal Time. Oh. We're almost done, folks. Hang in there. <laughs> uh, it's really either cool or disheartening. I haven't decided which. Okay, yes. U UTC. So UTC was formalized in 1960. Okay. And then we realized there were problems. Because <laughs> there always are. <laughs> Earth's rotation is actually not that regular. Okay. Leap year? Is this where we're going with this bad boy? Well, leap year is how normal people deal with it. <laughs> uh. Let's just add another day in there. Seems cool. But it's something more deep than just leap year, right? It's we have these things called leap seconds. We have leap seconds. <laughs> and leap seconds were introduced in 1972. Okay. I mean, they've been around forever, right? But... <laughs> We just figured them out. Is this <laughs> well? All all of absolute time and therefore leap seconds is just kind of this derived construct that we have based on things we observe, uh, which is what science is. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> right. So <laughs> leap seconds haven't been around forever. We've just invented them. Right. Seventies. Okay. Right. Okay. So they started in 1972, and it comes uh, from TAI, but accounting for leap seconds. That's how we get coordinated universal time okay so okay. utc is adding in all these wobbles that the earth is going through as it rotates around the sun right and so we actually can't predict leap seconds very far in the future because of all those irregularities in the earth's rotation wow okay so the rule is they have to be announced i believe it's six months ahead of time in another bulletin this one from the international earth rotation and reference system service Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh-huh. And since 1972, we have had 25 leap seconds. Really? Yes. So some of these time scales use leap seconds and some of them don't. Which so I imagine is a big problem. Right. So if you are measuring something in TAI, which does not have leap seconds, you will be consistently 25 seconds different from UTC. Which is a significant amount. Yes. <laughs> but after this year, you'll be 26 leap seconds off, right? Yes, we have a leap second coming up, so oh. it's really exciting. So how is this going to affect my computer? <laughs> this one won't. In the future, there is going to be a problem, and that comes with our next time scale. But if you're around on June 30th of this year, and Hopefully. you want to see something really cool, go watch the Naval Observatory's clock online, or call in, and instead of going 59 zero. The second counter will go 59, 60, 0. Oh, cool. Yes. <laughs> this is how we know we're nerds, folks. Because <laughs> we're both going to do this. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's, it's a really interesting thing to watch, and it plays complete havoc for those of us that do data analysis. Oh, man, I bet. Because now you've got this extra second running around in there. Now you've got an extra second, and we've never had, though it is specified in the time standard, and it's physically possible, that maybe we would have to have a leap second, but the other way. Maybe we would have to have a minute where the clock went Ooh. 58, zero. A correction backwards. 
that hasn't happened yet, but if that does, whoa. <laughs> so doing these corrections has actually caused some serious problems in the past because GPS manufacturers didn't always think to program uh, leap seconds in. And what would happen when a leap second occurs and is transmitted down in the GPS downlink? And so there have been several cases where very expensive field campaign GPS receivers have locked up. Oh, <laughs> they just quit digesting because they can't handle it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, because what, what did we say earlier? So like a nanosecond is two to three feet difference on the Earth. So now mm -hmm. you throw in a whole extra second that maybe half your satellites have and half of them don't. And, then... and so that's a billion feet. <laughs> closer to or further away from the satellite what's a billion feet between friends <laughs> right mm, wow okay now, so <laughs> so th this how do computers deal with this right yeah uh google has a very creative way of doing it and some versions of the linux kernel do this which is where okay leap second is coming up so i am going to extend the definition of a second on my operating system by a few parts per million and smear the leap second out over a period of time but how can they do that if they're not totally predictable? Well, you know that a leap second is coming. So it's announced, you know, six months ahead of time. Okay. Okay. So, so then, they can make those corrections right. in that kind of time frame. So okay. they'll smear it out over days to weeks. Wow. Um, that's interesting. Yes. So that's one way to do it. Another <laughs> okay. way, and what the Linux kernel, most Linux kernel versions do anyway, if you watch the time counter, is they have the same second twice you have the same time timestamp twice. So hopefully you're not doing anything in that exact time. Right. And if you're because... measuring data, collecting data, using you know fixed length buffers to store data, uh, it gets really ugly. Right, yeah. Because what do you do with that double reading? Right. So that leads us to epic time. So this is real? You didn't make this up? I really thought you might have made this up. <laughs> no. And this is going to be the last thing that we talk about. Uh, I don't even think we should get into time transfer. That's an entirely another ball of wax. Oh, yeah. You, can, you guys can go read a book about that if you're interested. Yes. But so, uh, I, I'm interested in epic time. That sounds pretty awesome. So epic <laughs> time is the number of seconds that have elapsed since 000000 UTC, Thursday, January 1st, 1970. This reminds me of, like, all those crazy thoughts about when the Earth was made. And so, you mm -hmm. know, like, Bishop Usher, 2.30 p.m. on, like, some Thursday <laughs> in October or something like that, you know? And, well, what it kind of reminds me of is, you know, Captain's Log, star date, and then some other <laughs> number. <laughs> Excellent, yes. So, Epic Time does not incorporate leap seconds by its definition, but the implementation of how Epic Time is displayed on your computer is pretty messy and depends on the operating system and how things are set up and if you're syncing time with some remote server. Mm. But it stores that number of seconds as an integer that's 32 bits long in the computer memory. Okay. And for people that are familiar with computer systems, you know that every, so an 8-bit number can only hold values between 0 and 255, right? Right. Well, 32-bit will eventually run out of integer numbers that it can hold, and it will roll over to zero again. Okay. That will happen on January 19th of 2038, one second after 314.07 UTC. Okay. And that means that all computers that use Epic Time, which is every Unix Linux system that doesn't have a patch that is being developed right now, uh, will cease to function. <laughs> Because all timestamps are not going to make sense to the computer since it has files that are created many, many years after 1970, and it will oh. be reset to Thursday, January 1st, 1970. Wow. Okay. So Y2K but, was nothing compared to the 2038 problem, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, but the lucky thing is, is, you know, we've got quite some time to fix it, hopefully. Yes, and there are lots of things going on. It's, once again, links in the show notes. You can go read all about it. Uh, there are time underscore tea parties that Linux nerds have <laughs> all the time, you know, celebrating <laughs> when the counter rolled over nice big even numbers like the odometer <laughs> on your car. Exactly. <laughs> nerds never cease to amaze me. I love this. And we should point out it's not epic time like this is the greatest time ever, but epoch, right? E-P-O-C-H time. Right. So <laughs> okay. links in the show notes. But 
if you are still with us, we are about <laughs> out of time. <laughs> and hopefully you've still got that dried coffee sitting on your desk, right? Because... It's time for everybody's favorite segment. My favorite Friday. <laughs> so I don't have dried coffee, and I'm really, really peeved about it. But <clears throat> John's picked a great uh, paper this week talking about dried coffee. And yes, I'm serious. It's a great paper about the physics of why your coffee dries in the shape that it does. Right. So this actually comes from a quick study. I'd would assume that most people listening might get physics today. Uh, I would, well, yeah, hopefully. It's great. It's great. You should join AGU and get it. Uh, so physics today, yes. It's a wonderful, I think, bi-monthly magazine that comes out, and it's got lots of interesting things about recent developments in physics, uh, and it's got these articles called Quick Studies. So this one is called Coffee Rings and Coffee Discs, Physics on the Edge. <laughs> uh, yep, a little nerd humor there. Uh-huh. So if you look at your droplet of dried coffee, unless it depends on the surface that it's on. Oh, yeah, that is true. You probably see a dark ring of stain around the outside and not much stain in the center. And why might that be? And it turns out it's about the particle shape. Is that, that what you got from this, Shannon? Yeah. Um, so the particle shape of what's in the coffee, right? So. Right. The, you have all these suspended particles that make coffee delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and so how the coffee dries has to do with the sphericity of the suspended particles that are floating around in there, right? Right. So you put your droplet on the desk, and you actually end up getting the outer edge of the droplet grabbing onto rough spots on your desk and being pinned there. Right. So and as the water's evaporating, the edges have to stay where they are. And so as they do that, you get a concentration in that area, right? Right. So the water evaporates, the drop has to get not as tall, and that means that there has to be a fluid flow towards the outside of the droplet, and that fluid flow carries the particles. That's cool. So basically, you've pinned down the little area, and as evaporation proceeds these little suspended particles have nowhere to go right because you can't evaporate your actual coffee into the air or else we'd be all floating in a caffeine sea of goodness all the time <laughs> um <laughs> but since they don't have anywhere to go they get preferentially pulled to these pinned down edges and that's where you get your dark coffee stain from right and anybody that's had uh, mineralogy knows all about packing and closed packing and spheres <laughs> oh, yes, we do, but we've all tried to forget it. <laughs> <laughs> so spherical coffee grains can actually close pack really nicely. But what if you have coffee grains or grains of something that are more like ellipses? Oh, so then you're not... Well. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So then you're not going to get that sort of perfectly shaped thing. And so as you get these different shapes, you get different shapes of the dried coffee, right? Right. So the ellipses are actually going to change the surface of the fluid that they're floating in. Uh, the surface gets uh, near the tip, it's pushed down and kind of pulled up on the side of these. And so they want to get to some minimum energy configuration like everything in nature does, right? Right, exactly. Nature is lazy and it doesn't want to expend energy. Right. So you end up with a very evenly spread surface of ellipses so your droplet would be completely dark in the center but very evenly dark from center to edge okay right and this may seem totally pointless <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know it's the most pointless things like this that might spurn really good ideas right but all right so this means that choosing the appropriate particle shape you can control coverage of any kind of suspended particle on a surface um and it turns out the same theory that describes this works on burning paper, the combustion front of burning paper. Oh, okay. That's kind of uh, cool. Right. And really, if you want to make a coating on something, a very uniform coating on something, or make a surface that doesn't get uniform coatings on it, like a glass that you don't want, if you spill something on it, you don't want to have this nice huge stain. Right. You can use this theory. And the paper has some really great analogies that you should go look at the figure. 
that use Tetris blocks. <laughs> Coolest figure in a science paper ever. <laughs> right. So whether the blocks can go, you know, all the way, like normally when you play a Tetris game, to until they hit the, the base or another block, or whether when they get close to a block and when they're immediately adjacent to a block, they stick. Right. So if you get those, like, awful Z shapes that no one likes in Tetris, you're going to sort of get this like dendritic growth pattern as opposed to if you've got the longer shapes, you're going to get sort of more singular linear concentrations. Yeah, and you can even get to a point where the if the ellipses are very very elliptical, that you don't even have to get you don't get stuck as the nearest neighbor. It pulls you in line. <laughs> And you get yes. these very long, thin columns instead of the kind of the dendritic network. Right, So exactly. Did you have any other thoughts about coffee rings, coffee discs, other than that <laughs> you wish you had coffee? Uh, I do wish I had coffee, but it's really cool because, I mean, what I immediately thought of is, you know, my husband paints cars. And so, you know, there's all kinds of – there's a lot of money in painting cars and a lot of money in the research that goes behind, like – how you can evenly spread paint, you know, how quick you can put on a second coat. How is the first coat going to affect the second coat? And it has to do with the shapes of these, you know, spheroids of paint that you're shooting out of a paint gun, right? And if you can cut down the drying time or you can optimize sort of the shapes of the paint, I mean, this little paper about coffee sort of outlines some of the physics about how you can create you know, better paints, better coatings, anything like that. So it does have a wider, a much wider expanse than just that drop of coffee. But Yes, and bonus points to anybody that works in a lab where they have a really nice microscope with a camera on it that wants to shoot some video of <laughs> drying coffee droplets. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are getting an environmental scanning electron microscope here in March um, at my university. So maybe that could be something we play around with after hours. <laughs> This this could be the best use. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Hey, it's in it's in physics today. It's legitimate, right? Mm -hmm. It totally <laughs> is. All right. Well, I hope that uh, you are stuck with us through that uh, <laughs> that conversation on time. Uh, so you're saying we're out of time, John? I, I think we are out of time. There are only eighty six thousand four hundred <laughs> seconds today, and ours are up. <laughs> well, are we out of UTC time or UCR time or which time are we out of? All of them? <laughs> I, I think we were out of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Epic. All right. Man, I really love that fun paper. Any fun paper, really, that's about coffee, which is definitely what I need right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Coffee, pumpkin pie. You can't beat it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, take some of that to go when you go outside and um, warm up because, yeah, did I mention it's really cold? <laughs> <laughs> I think you did earlier. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, well, I really enjoyed listening to that show again, you know, multiple times for me, going through the notes. And I thought it was a great way to spend Thanksgiving. Uh, we are really happy with uh, all the success that this podcast has had since we started it. And we're really thankful for everybody that's listening. Absolutely. Um, you know, we joke a lot, but hopefully there are more than six of you out there. <laughs> and we'd uh, definitely <laughs> love to hear from you. And we're super thankful for coming along on the ride. And hopefully we're improving. And any improvements that you want to send along our way, we're certainly going to listen to any feedback you have. Absolutely. And we're not going anywhere. Don't worry. <laughs> we will be here for a long, long time. But if you do have some feedback that you want to send us, or if you want to say that you wish we weren't here for a long, long time, Shannon, how can they do that? Um, well, you can email John directly at, no, <laughs> you can email show <laughs> at don'tpanicgeocast.com and uh, find us on Twitter. Um, I'm sure we're going to be tweeting, even though we're not live recording this show, we're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next time, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. So one of the most important things we as parents do is we teach our children about time. 
We teach them important things like reading the clock. Now on every day there are 24 hours, 24 of these hours, 12 in the day and 12 in the night. I know I said there are 24 hours in a day, 12 in the day, 12 in the night. But a day is made up of a day and a night. Now, on every clock or watch, there are three pointers. They're called hands, all right? They point to the hour, all right? You understand that? There's the hour hand, that's the first hand, the hour hand. The second hand is the minute hand, and the third hand is the second hand. <laughs>